When you're teaching somebody web development skills, when is the right time to start teaching code quality and testing practices? Carl Stoley believes it's never too early. Let's hear how he incorporates code quality into his courses. Welcome to Test and Code. Welcome to Test and Code. I am pleased to have Carl Stolle on. Did I get that right? You absolutely did. Awesome. Well, welcome, Carl. We're going to talk about testing web stuff, like the front end and stuff like that. So, right. Um, but uh, before we get into that, um, who are you, Carl? Professionally, for my day job, I am an associate professor of information technology and management at Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago. Uh, I teach primarily intermediate and advanced undergraduate classes and students, and then uh, a range of graduate level, primarily master's degree students as well. So uh, I've been doing web stuff and teaching web development kinds of topics for longer than I'd care to count, but really it's been about 17, 18 years now since I was in graduate school. Um, so I've taught a lot. I've, you know, seen my own teaching change in regard to the web and, and sort of it's been within the last, you know, four or five years or so that you know, our topic for today, talking about testing, where testing has really been something, even in the earliest intro classes that I like to introduce students to. So uh, you said like the last few years, so um, was, was it just something, was testing just not taught on front end things or was it just not really done on front end, you know? Well, you know, I, the, the, we've certainly had more tools available to us. And of course, one of the things that I think was, was the primary motivator for me is that for the longest time, if you wanted to do front-end testing, you needed to use something like Selenium, which is a great tool, but it's also you know, a, a proprietary closed thing. Um, and really it was when the, web art, when the uh, W3C released the initial web driver specification where now there's a standard API that browsers can and to the you know to the large part do now implement the web driver API so that you're able to programmatically access the browser. I mean, I think that's the thing that in traditional unit and function testing, you, you know, you're just all of your code is sitting. There is no client, there is no server. You've just got your code. You fire up your development environment or your test environment. You run your battery of tests, and that's it. It's the end of the day. But of course, when we're talking about web, you've got a test on the actual responses that are coming back from a server. And you need to generally feed those things through a browser so that, you know, if you've got JavaScript involved or something that you're actually testing the output of that in the way that a user is going to experience it rather than just as a blob of code that kind of, you know, benignly sits there on your hard drive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you, you said you're, um, um, I guess you're teaching this to people that to, to students. Yeah. Um, at a college level, like when should they start? When when should people start learning about testing? Is it right away or after? Yeah, well, I mean, that's or? that's where I've moved. To me, it used to be something that I would teach in my more advanced courses. So I teach a, an advanced sort of capstone class for our students who are specializing in web development, and that was the class where I had been. And this is you know going back three or four years. Like that's where I'd kind of been doing all the really serious heavy duty testing you know, both functional and, and, and unit testing um, on server-side code and then some basic sort of 
front end testing. And the students that were in those early classes that I taught really liked it. And they were also completely unprepared for it that, okay. you know, I was asking them to make a, a bunch of different cognitive leaps. And so as I've, you know, tried to work on more sort of curricular cohesion for the sake of our students, but also for the sake of my own self so that I can say like, oh, yeah, yeah. we covered this or professor so-and-so covered this and then know to build on that. It became more and more obvious to me that we can actually introduce testing or at least something, you know, code quality related that's automated early on in the learning process. And so one of the places that I begin in my basic web courses is just with linting um, and sort of coupling that alongside, uh, you know, their basic HTML and CSS validators so that you get students you know, even ones that are really, they love programming, they do all that, like testing is one of those things that it it just doesn't get picked up in the sort of natural flow of things, the way that, oh, how do I construct a function or how do I, you know, build a class definition? Like those things seem to have, there's like an osmosis to them in ways that I don't think testing really has because you have to be really intentional to introduce testing. So just even getting over that cognitive part that, hey, you can write code or you can you know, at least write a little configuration file that then go in and tests your code. It's it's sort of a, a big sort of moment yeah. for students to, to realize that. I'm, I'm not thinking about it right now. Things like uh, linters and HTML validators and things, they might even be, I mean, it, it, more important than other code. So like for instance, uh, uh, in well i mean in python code you can write bad code and if it doesn't get run it won't it's okay um and like there can be syntax errors and as long as that file never gets picked up it's not going to hit anything which is bad that's why we use coverage but um like in c and c plus plus um the compiler i mean the compiler itself is picky enough and you can use warnings to where um just getting it to compile is a big job but in in web in HTML and CSS, our browsers are notoriously permissive. Um, they will let you drop off a closing uh, tag or something, um, and try to interpret what you meant and try to to show things uh, as you intended, uh, or at least how they think you intended it. Um, and that's um, that's actually I think probably not helpful for people learning code like HTML and mm -hmm. CSS. Because, um, because if you're just trying things out and showing it on a on a in a browser, you're like, oh, it looks fine. What's what's the problem? No, you're absolutely right. The you know browsers are permissive, you know, to a fault, uh, and I and I say fault, you know, very deliberately. That you know, and and making sure that students understand that, like, yes, like, let's talk a little bit for just a few minutes about like the origins of the web. Like HTML was written not with the kind of precision of even like a, a parallel markup language with that, which like XML or XML is very demanding and will not tolerate any errors. And HTML is kind of the complete opposite school. And of course the idea was, is to make the web, uh, you know, founded on languages that you didn't necessarily need a lot of technical skill in order to write. The trade-off there is that you don't need a lot of technical skill to write them. And so if you're going to talk about this, you know, in, in any kind of professional context or a classroom context, we expect higher than that. You should be doing more and better work than you could just sort of like stumble upon on your own or file, you know, save as HTML from Microsoft Word or something awful like that. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that, that that permissiveness sort of 
invites testing and invites bringing your own batteries of tools to the problem. Because like you say, you know, if, if you write something bad in CSS, the line just gets chucked. It's like it doesn't even exist. And oh, if wow. you write something, okay. you know, I mean, you can push the most butchered looking should be HTML at a browser and it will do something with it. And of course, part of what made the the leap from HTML 4.01 to HTML5, that specification ballooned by like eight or nine times. And the whole reason was is that the spec suddenly covered error handling to try to make it so that browsers would uniformly handle broken HTML in uniform uh -huh. ways. So um Interesting. Yeah, and, and and then of course that becomes a very tough sell for students. Like, well, I just wrote this thing. It looks fine to me. Works fine for me. Which gets into another part, right? Where when you write for the web, you are giving up one of the. You're giving up having a certain compiler or a certain runtime environment. You're at the mercy of whatever wackadoo, you know, internet connected toaster or whatever is displaying <laughs> your web page, and it's got to work because if it doesn't yeah. work. It's not like a typical user is going to say, oh, well, this is clearly a limitation of my device or its operating system. So it's like, no, look at this site is broken. It's broken for me. And of course, if you're building no, a I site for somebody else. I think you're joking, but it's probably not that far off. I've, I mean, uh, the store I walked by and I saw a refrigerator that has um, ha has a news panel that you can watch the news on it mm -hmm. and stuff. So I'm sure Internet, you like toasters with this ability are not far off. But. Right. No, like it's 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 kind of a running joke, but it's not a joke <laughs> that, that there are these appliances. And of course, you know, the mind reels about software updates and things like that. But th these devices are in the world. These, you know, yeah. browsers yeah. Are out there, older devices and things like that. And I want as a much text as... to tell me when my toast is ready. I mean, who doesn't? Right. Um, um, but OK, so after after validators and linters, um, uh, I assume you step it up and teach more testing tools. So where do you go from there? From there, we tend to go to visual regression testing. So we use a, a framework in my class called Backstop, sometimes called Backstop.js. And it's a very sort of easy to grasp concept. What it does is it makes use of the WebDriver API and can run, I think it runs out of the box on Chrome. Um, and so, and you can even set it up to run headless Chrome. So it, it almost mimics like more of a traditional testing environment where you don't necessarily have browsers flashing up on the screen. And But it what it does is it allows you to set up a bunch of scenarios, which are like, hey, you know, here's a viewport that approximates like a mobile screen. It's 300 pixels wide by 700 tall. And here's sort of like a, you know, middling tablet. Size. And so you come up with different viewports and then you give it a list of URLs that you wanted to test. And then all it does is go fire up headless Chrome and take screenshots um, of the different pages. And you can do either just the viewport itself or you can actually do the whole giant like CVS receipt, you know, long page of the entire thing. And then you have to approve the images that come back from that. Of course, your initial test run, there is nothing to run it against. So you just say, yep, this is the way that the site is supposed to look like. Then on subsequent runs, as you're mucking about with your CSS or rewriting things in your HTML, it does a basic image diff from your sort of set of images that you've said, this is what it's supposed to look like versus what this latest render looked like. And the interface of it, it actually opens up a little report right in the browser for you. And then you can sort of, you can look just and see, you know, here's image A and here's the new one that we've got. Um, it gives you little slider tools. So you can actually slide back and forth and kind of compare it. Mm -hmm. And it even tries to sort of highlight 
uh, the visual differences. Again, we're talking about images here, so that you know there there can be limitations to that, but they are faithful screenshots of what you've got, and. So that's the basic process that it works. So it's 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 really about like what is the visual output of this thing going to look like in a browser? And the you know sort of point that I drive home to students is this is more for your comfort as a developer rather than to say oh yeah if somebody's looking at this on IE six on you know Windows ninety eight or something like that then it's going to look great. It's like no, this is about you having your own internal consistency right. with your design. So I got a question before we talk about other things. So I'm. I'm yeah. um, so if I'm using this these, these screenshots, I I'm hoping that like uh, it's not just static stuff that I can have. Like let's say I've got a shopping system, mm-hmm. I put a few things in the cart, and then go look at my uh, cart summary, and then take a screenshot there. I can I can do uh, snapshots at various times in the in a workflow. Yeah, true? You can, there, there's a sort of little DSL that's built into its configuration files that allow you to either wait. For a certain amount of time or you can wait until a particular element is visible on the page if you've got some javascript that just runs automatically and makes let's say an ajax oh, okay. call or something like that and you could do i i hope that it gets to be more robust over time but you can do some basic sort of interaction with elements where you can say all right let's trigger this warning message on a on a file input or something so you can you know, make it go into an error state so that you can grab a screenshot that's going to show, oh, this is what the form looks like when we've got an error message or something like that. And then again, sort of compare those things back and forth. Okay. All right. And then um, uh, how about end-to-end stuff with um, uh, utilizing a backend as well? Sure. So, I mean, even when we're talking about doing backstop, like one of the other sort of things that I insist upon with students is that they're not just using, you know, file open in the browser and have some ugly file URL. Like we run some kind of small little development grade web server locally so that students are actually interacting over HTTP with that. So, you know, even when we're talking about just like static HTML, CSS and JS files, we're still serving them over HTTP, which is itself sort of an interesting testing problem because browsers have locked down more and more uh, what browser APIs are made available to you if you're not in at least an HTTP context. And it's getting to the point now when we talk about like uh, the file store, file system APIs or the traditional ones like audio and, and video APIs for accessing your camera and things like that. Even if you're running on localhost, you cannot reliably hit those things unless you're serving on HTTPS over localhost. So we have to that, do the secure context as well. That's what I was curious about, if, if that's a thing that we have to... You have to do local HTTPS. Is that something you can do? It is something you can do. It adds, of course, layers of complexity, including with testing. So when we're talking about doing, uh, you know, more front-end testing or more interactively looking at not in the visual regression testing case of like how the site looks, but how it behaves and how um, the content is presented there. So I've been teaching a framework called uh, Nightwatch.js for that. Uh, which actually within the last couple of months, I think was acquired by Browser Stack, which I think Browser Stack had run um, Nightwatch. And if you don't know, or your listeners don't know, uh, Browser Stack, it's uh, one of the the more long-lived <laughs> uh, multi-browser, multi-device testing services. So what they can do is actually emulate, okay, here's what your site looks like on Internet Explorer 8, or here's what your site looks like on Firefox 32 or something like that, or on different mobile devices and things like that. But they just acquired Nightwatch, which had historically been sort of like an independent open source project. And Hmm. uh, it now looks like this is actually going to be a good thing because the company actually uses the product 
Um, and now, you know, the core development team uh, works for browser stack. So that gives, you know, so they get paid now. Future. That's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> actually get paid for working, writing software. It's this novel <laughs> thing. Um, but, um, yeah. but in, even in that case, it's, it's a matter of, you know, we're going to run all these tests and, and usually when my students get more advanced, they'll have like a suite of tests that are meant to run over, you know, their local, you know, local host or something like that. And then another suite of tests for when things get deployed to production, which is usually duplicated, but they're just hitting the actual live URL um, instead of the one that's happening uh, over the local network. But you're doing legitimate requests Thanks to the, the WebDriver API, you're able to sort of programmatically interact with the browser. Nightwatch is a little bit different because it actually will open up a browser window where you can actually sit it, see it for you know, a few seconds while it runs your tests. Um, and then it, it you know, basically does the old school, like it releases an exit code, right? Like if you have all your tests pass, exit code zero. And if it's failed, then it's exit one or bigger. So um, yeah. You're they still need those things for like CI systems. They depend on. Well, yeah, like that. and that's that's actually what I'm getting ready to talk about and teach this week is is integrating these kinds of tests using Git hooks so that you are protecting you know at least your mainline development branch against bad commits by running these batteries of tests you know as part of that commit lifecycle. So I know that this is as a professional developer. I know all of this this, this stuff is important. How um, and. But how how are the students reacting to all learning these testing tools? Do they are they grateful for them, or do they feel like they're getting in the way of learning what they want to learn? Or yeah, that's I, that's a good question. I you know I think I've got a reputation for for being like the kind of teacher who puts way too much stuff in in any given class, and and I'm okay with that. And I and I I learn to treat students in ways that they're okay with it. Um, you know, it's it's possible to say oh, we could you know take just a slice of maybe a third of something and really go deep, but I think students and and teachers alike tend to overestimate what can really get done in the span of sixteen weeks or however long a semester is. Um, that you're not going to become an it doesn't matter what level you're at if you're a PhD student or a brand new undergrad, you're not going to become an expert in a topic in sixteen weeks, no matter how good the teacher is, no matter how skilled you are, and so as my career has advanced, I've been more interested in breadth than in depth yeah. because you're going to have, especially, you know, these are students who are going to be, you know, and, and do go on to be developers and cybersecurity experts and, and things like that. You've got your whole career to sort of like go deep on the topics that are going to be most relevant to you. But if somebody doesn't introduce you to the concept of testing until way late, or if they don't talk about, you know, how to write really good documentation or how to use Git hooks, then you'll, you can really go for a long time without even realizing those things exist unless you're in a shop that deliberately uses those technologies. So to me, I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know, how do we use a class to expose students to a bunch of things to help them sort of work at a level of abstraction to say, okay, maybe I'm never going to write another Nightwatch test beyond this class. Fine. But now I cannot pretend that I don't know that automated testing exists. I cannot pretend that it won't make my project better. And for some students, that means won't earn me a better grade because, hey, yeah. I've got passing tests. So my professor isn't going to load this thing up and see a bunch of errors in the JavaScript console or whatever. And so they begin to see that. And then the other part that I love about testing and the, the thing that becomes the real selling point for it with students, like, and this is a case where maybe I need to introduce this earlier, like in my so I teach sort of like this two-course sequence of web classes. And the, the fall is sort of like, 
uh, a class that's really just about like the fundamentals of language. We're not making websites to please anybody or that look visually beautiful. It's more like, can you write HTML and have it validate it and lint it out? Can you write JavaScript and have it not throw any uncaught errors? Like that's the level we're working at. But we do do CSS in there as well. And I teach responsive design and you know inclusive accessible design and one of the things that we do in that class is students you know begin their sort of early basic designs and they're all in absolute units like pixel units so you're saying oh this is an 18 pixel paragraph or this is a 37 pixel heading and then we make the conversion of that into relative units and you know, it's simple algebra to go from like a pixel divided by another pixel and you get an M unit of that. But students go to pieces in there. And of course, when you're talking about a style sheet that for the more ambitious students goes to several hundred lines and making all these calculations and they're sitting there and they're constantly refreshing their browser window and like watching to see, did I do the conversion right? Because if I did it right, then nothing should shift around. Flash forward to the spring, they come in and I'm like, hey, this is Backstop Jazz. It'll take little photographs to your website. And then I'll show them. I'm like, here, this is all in pixels. Now let's do the unit conversion into REMS. And then the tests pass. And they're like, why didn't you show us this last semester? Like, why <laughs> you, sh- you had us all sitting there, like clicking the refresh button to make sure that everything was okay. And I'm like, I know, sorry. There's only so much that you can teach in a single semester. <laughs> and that's, that's the interesting part for me about the visual regression testing is that, you know, a lot of times the, the work of refactoring CSS is usually not a whole lot of like what we would see as refactoring in other kinds of code. We're like, oh, we're simplifying this method or, oh, we're turning this into a helper and we got to test it. In yeah. CSS, it's usually like, where did I kind of go nuts when I was designing something? Where did I start writing what you know I usually call with students like magic CSS or dis- desperation CSS, like where you're just you're trying to get something to work, and so you just you throw ever everything at. It. Oh, we'll so you say display block here, and we'll throw in a whole bunch of stuff. Well, you want to go back and eventually clean that up. And yeah. so what I love about even just in my professional work about backstop is that I can go through and be like, ah, I don't think I need to put in this default property on Flexbox or whatever it is. And so I'll delete it and then rerun my test. Like, sure enough, that had no effect on anything that I was doing. And so that's that's been a useful tool um, this semester with my students to, to say like, hey, you know, let's go back and actually try to lighten this, you know, style sheet up. Because I do have students who are like, you know, they're big on performance or whatever. It's like, well, yeah. okay, we can do this JavaScript stuff, but maybe if you just lighten your CSS file a little bit, we don't have to worry about, you know. Yeah. Well, I wonder, I wonder if, um, I mean, we've all been there of like the, in the, the refreshing the browser to see if, see if, if what you're trying to do is working or like, um, yeah, maybe I wonder if that's important. You have to go through that. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think it's helpful. And I think the other thing, and, and this is why, you know, I, I kind of agree with you. Like, maybe that is the kind of like a rite of passage, cruel thing that we do to, to <laughs> beginners. Uh, but, you know, web browsers, and this is going to sound crazy, but web browsers are incredibly hostile web development environments because they all cache everything within an inch of its life. So if you don't know to open up your developer tools and to disable the caching, you're going to go and and I do have students that like just get on our electronic discussion board and we'll just vent. They'll be like, I wrote the CSS style like eight different ways, 10 different times. And it turns out it was, you know, the browser was showing me the the CSS file that I wrote yesterday. 
Like it wasn't even loading up the latest thing, even on localhost, even on a local loopback, all of that. So, yeah. you know, being able to know those things and and to understand how they impact you are are important. But I don't know. We'll we'll see. Maybe next fall I'll try to introduce some visual regression testing earlier. Like you said, maybe not going so deep, but more broad. I think it's going to help them eat if they get into it. Uh, none of this stuff's going to be surprising when they they get into a job uh, interview. Then, if somebody asks about them, they can go, "Oh yeah, well, I've, I've used Nightwatch and Backstop." And yeah, and that and that's that's always the hard thing with with any beginner. I think is that they assume that you know, oh, if I'm really good at this, I'll know this language backwards and forwards. Or if I'm really good at this, I'll know this tool backwards and forwards. It's like yeah. the tool is it's here right now, but give it six months. It might not be. And so then the question becomes, how are you able to sort of abstract what you're learning about this so that you can apply it elsewhere? And I, and I would yeah. say, you know, before I get like, if you know, any of my colleagues happen to listen to this and be like, you're going for breadth rather than depth. You know, I think the other side of that is that I go for breadth, but I'm always talking about learning, like not just like you should learn this thing because I'm teaching it to you, but like paying attention to how you learn things and what is going to be really useful. So, yeah, like the version control thing, like one of the ways that I I mean, that's the sort of three legged stool that I like to teach on is is testing version control and documentation. You need all of those things sort of working in concert if you're going to develop a product, but also if you're going to develop as a developer so that yeah. you can say, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to learn this language. Or I'm going to learn this framework or whatever it is and be able to have sort of the confidence that like, yeah, I don't know this right now. And there's a whole bunch of stuff I don't know, but here's the repository that I built while I was working through this book or this tutorial or whatever, and, and be able to then use the things you know about like creating a branch and get like okay you know i'm following along in brian's book and i'm gonna just make a branch here to try out some things myself and see if i'm learning and so you know i i'm always preaching version controls a lot of things but as a learning tool it's just in, incomparable to be able yeah. to study what you've done and figure out what it is that you're learning and how it is that you learn so that when you don't have a professor or a senior developer or a manager or somebody standing over you saying hey we're gonna do this that you actually know how to pick up and and learn those things on your own. Yeah, man. Wish I was learning uh, web stuff from you. That sounds like pretty good <laughs> classes. So, yeah, um, it's fun because you know, and and there's there's only a small portion, especially in those earlier web classes. Only a small portion of those students are actually specializing in web. We have a, an interesting curriculum. Uh, that requires all students to take classes in web, partially because the second class is, is the one I'm teaching now, which is also about sort of HCI and user interfaces and things like that, nice. which I think is the other reason that I've really pushed more testing in there is that these are you know students that are not going to do web stuff, but they are going to do other kinds of development. And so I want to make sure that when they go into those, you know, next level uh, software development classes, you know, if they're learning Java or they're learning Python or whatever, they're, or they're doing data science and they're doing Python, that they know that these kinds of tools exist and that yeah. hopefully they, they, they at least feel guilty about not drawing upon them if they don't <laughs> actually draw upon them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, sometimes I think about that. Did I just write a book just to, to, to appease people's guilt over not testing their code? Um, but anyway, right. Well, I mean, that's the, and that's the thing that, you know, I, I love about your book is that you do talk about testing in a way that, that I don't know how to phrase it without accidentally insulting you, but I think there's like a value apparentness in the way that you write and talk about testing. 
Um, but sometimes it is useful to, to, you know, explicitly say this is why this is a good thing to do. Yeah. And I think guilt is a powerful motivating force, especially professionally, where it's like, oh, I really ought to do that, but it you know takes too much time. And so, okay, well, maybe I'm a lost cause at my age and my stage in my career, but this, you know, 19 oh, or 20 I... year old that's in my class, like I will, you know, preach the gospel of testing or whatever to them and make it a more natural part of development instead of like an optional thing that like this little group of hardcore testing nerds like to do or something. I don't know. Well, I mean, the, 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 uh, the industry's changing, so um, I think I think we're going to see one of the things I'm pushing off often is developers need to test, and mm-hmm. um, and even front end people need to test. That wasn't yeah. always the case. We some big companies do have QA teams. Very, there. I think a majority of the companies and the majority of developers out there are not going to have a QA team looking over their shoulder. They have to test right. their own stuff. Um, so. Uh, well, that's just... an interesting question too. Is you know, I think those are st- even in most shops, the border between QA team and automated testing can be a little fluctuated and fluid. You know, I I, I had a, a student probably ten years ago who went on to work as a QA or QA person. Um, you know, and she was very much kind of like every time there was a deploy, sort of manually going and and pushing all the buttons and make sure everything. She was almost like a backstop for their uh, for their automated testing. Like they, yes, they tested everything before they deployed, but then you're still like, what did we catch? What did we, you know, miss that came out on the other end? Yeah. But I think as you're able to do more things like with front end testing, it's not that like, Oh good. We can fire the Q and a, or the, I don't know why I keep saying Q and a QA team. Yeah. We can fire them. It's, it's more like what testing does for even beginning developers. It's like, this relieves you of so much cognitive load. Like if you've got a linter that's enforcing a particular quotation mark style yeah. and particular indentation or making sure your tags yeah. are closed or whatever, then you don't have to worry about that anymore. You've got a tool that's going to catch that. And I think the same thing is true for QA is that we've already run this battery of tests that ensures these sort of low level knuckle draggy kinds of things have been addressed. Now you as a QA person can go out and search of those edge cases or those weird combinations of browsers and time of day and phase of the moon or whatever it is that causes the site to break, that it ends up being a good value add across the entire organization. And also just, there's, there's a lot of teams without, without QA. So, right. Um, but the, uh, the other, one of the things that drives me nuts is a lot of the, I think this is a, some old, old tutorials, but there's still a lot of people that'll say you need to learn to, testing practices and at first it's going to slow you down and i wish i could just slap them um yeah it because it's it's a new thing anytime you learn anything new it's going to take a while swap out for a different keyboard it's get, it's going to slow you down a little bit of course it will but mm-hmm. if you uh embrace um having testing as part of your development process it doesn't you're not doing it slower you're you're doing it faster because you can and with less stress i think uh, but anyway yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's it's a lot like saying like, oh, well, you know, stretching before you go for a run will slow you down. So what? You're gonna skip that? Like to me, it's it's much more in that category of thing. Like, are you oh. taking care of your body before you actually push it to its, you know, some kind of limit? I want to change gears a little bit. You mentioned that um, one of the things you like to ter- to teach people is just to or get students to learn is that learning is an ongoing thing. They need to enjoy learning and things. And you 
uh, speaking of learning, are writing a book on WebRTC, which is very new. I didn't even hear about it until I heard you were writing a book about it. Can we change? You okay with changing gears right now? Yeah, sure. I love changing the subject and making wild shifts. So this is through Pragmatic, also mm-hmm. the same publisher that did the PyTest book. Um, uh, let's just do a brief like, what is it? What is WebRTC, and why are you writing a book on it? Sure. Well, so WebRTC is, uh, if you expand the initialism, it's web real-time communication. This was a specification that had been in development at the W3C for a little over a decade, depending on how um, you talk about it. It's closely related. In fact, it's built upon uh, the real-time communication specification, which is housed in bits and pieces with uh, the IETF. So basically, it's a web browser API wrapper around RTC protocols, which lets you do things traditionally like, you know, VoIP calls and, 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 and now we can do video streaming and things like that. So it's meant to be uh, a, a, a peer to peer communication protocol. So if I wire up and write a web RTC app, I can do basically, you know, in the, in the classical case, I can do like basically something like a Zoom call where I can, you know, if we're connected over WebRTC, I can see you, I can hear you, we can send data, you know, arbitrarily back and forth. And you're doing it entirely with native browser APIs. So there's no plugins, there's no libraries, there's no anything. It's baked right into the browser. And of course, uh, uh, the the way that I came to this thing uh, was not that I was necessarily like a huge WebRTC enthusiast. I'm a web developer by trade, uh, but I had an opportunity, and this was uh, right in the the heart of the pandemic. I think it was fall of 2020. Uh, there was this WebRTC class on the books at my institution, and it hadn't. I asked somebody about like, do we do we teach this thing? And like, oh yeah, you know, so and so, you know, back when the Earth was still cooling, like taught that class, and then he left, and so nobody's touched it. I was like, well, I'm going to be teaching online. Students are going to be attending class from home what better topic than to do this WebRTC thing? And I'm like, you know, I, you know, I don't really know that much about it. I can pick this up. And so (laughs) I, that was like in spring of 2020, I was going to be teaching it that fall. I'm like, well, there, there has to be tons of book. I mean, you know, yeah, the spec isn't finished yet. And so I started going to look for a book and I was like, there's nothing here that is any newer than like 2013, 2014, which of course is, you know, at least you're talking five generations of browsers since then. Yeah. Um, so I cobbled together what I could to teach that. Class. There was no book. Like it was clear that like, yes, I could buy a book so students feel good about spending money, but nothing that I read was, was, was all that helpful. And, and the spec had changed so much at that point and browsers implementations of it had changed yeah. that it wasn't going to be useful for students to know anyway. So I taught the class, wrote a ton of code, gave myself a sort of, you know, shotgun kind of education in WebRTC over that summer so that I could come in and not be an incompetent in front of my class and taught the class. It was great. It was super fun to actually teach that in a distance kind of model. Cause like when we get to like deploying WebRTC apps, I'm like, Hey, who wants to come and join? And so like students like gave them the URL and then suddenly boom, here we all are in this, you know, application I'd been writing as a demo in class and experiencing like you know when you're talking about direct peer to peer you have a lot of bandwidth you can work with and you don't have to compress the heck out of a, a video signal the way that you would if you're using Google Meet or Zoom or whatever so that you don't just run up a huge bandwidth bill instead so, you burn through your your own personal uh, bandwidth instead okay so just um 
I know we're not like jumping deep into our WebRTC, yeah. but just to uh, my own concept. So if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm using normal like a normal chat system or something like that, I'm going through the server and the server's relaying it to the the other person. Um, but with WebRTC, my message would just go directly from me to them, or is, is it bypassing the your, server? Or? Yeah, no. Depending on how the network is set up, there are there are edge cases. So um, to set up a WebRTC uh, call over the open internet requires a few additional pieces of technology, one of which is called a stun server. And what stun does is basically allow your browser to basically dial out and say, hey, can you tell me like where I am on the internet and what the you know port is I can mm -hmm. be reached on this particular network connection? Assumingly, you don't have a, an overly restrictive corporate or military firewall. Most of the time, you're able to establish that connection back and forth. But yeah, you're absolutely right. When that is the case, which it is for most home and, and office um, networks, then yeah, you're able to establish a connection directly between one browser and another without passing anything through hmm. a third-party server. And because of the way that the pr protocol was put together, it's all encrypted out of the box. You don't have to do anything special to make sure your audio signal or your video signal is encrypted at either end of that. So you've got full encryption, like all the modern stuff that you would expect. Uh, and again, you know, sometimes we have to make a fallback thing called a turn server where you're basically then going back to the, you know, relaying traffic. But most of the time you don't have to do that. You can make it a direct peer to peer connection. Okay. Now is this, um, uh, is this, this is in beta right now, right? No, it's done. Oh, the book is in beta. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My book is, I think I'm in the third beta right now. So I've got six of the nine chapters out, which are like the, the six bulk, like you can learn pretty much the core okay. of WebRTC from that. So it's not, your book's not done, but people can start learning it right away if they're, if they're curious about it. So, yeah, that's right. And and so. uh, there's been a, a tremendous number of people who have bought because there is no other book. I mean, that that's the tail end of the story is that like I finished teaching that class. It was great. And then I'm kind of like doing my end of the semester filing stuff away. And I'm looking at all this code and all this stuff that I wrote on WebRTC. I'm like, why am I putting this away? Like there's no other resource that kind of covers all this stuff on the market. And especially the one that does it from a web development pr perspective, like to say like, Hey, web developers, this is another, you know, API that you can put into your arsenal. So I, it, it's exciting because there, you know, there aren't, this is the only book that's on the market that I'm aware of right now that covers the completed web RTC specification. And it was a long time coming yeah. and I'd actually started writing the book proposal for Prague. And then as like a, an early Christmas present, I think it was in January of 2021 that they finalized and approved the w3c spec so it was done which to me was like okay this is green light because now we don't have to write a book and i'm not using the royal we but with whatever press i partnered with we're not publishing a book that needs to be changed to have a whole bunch months. of like hey yeah. well this might change or oh this is what it looks like now yeah. now it's like the spec's done yeah. and of course there's going to be a new version and, a, and probably a, a second edition at some point down the road but it is nice to yeah. have that nice confidence cool. of a completed spec well um good luck with the book and good luck with teaching uh and um i guess we'll keep in touch find yeah out that sounds great goes. brian thank you so much yeah. for having me and uh great to talk to you thank you carl not only for this episode but also for teaching the next generation thank you patreon supporters become a supporter by visiting testandcode.com slash support every dollar helps if you found this episode interesting or useful, please share it. 
tweet about it, tell a friend, or share with a coworker. Help the show grow by one. Thank you for listening. Now go out and try to have some fun coding.